welcome to this podcast for the PJSM community. It's about load, it's training load, match load, and how these affect injury and performance. There's been a great deal of attention to this area in the last couple of years, and so this podcast will bring you right up to date from four experts in the field. It's a very applied podcast, so I'm confident that anyone who works with individuals or team athletes will benefit from it. Let's hear from senior sports physiotherapist Paul Vizantini. Welcome to the Mastering Load Symposium in Melbourne, put on by Physiosports. And we have with us today uh, three men who I would describe as the dream team of training load management in 2016. Uh, we welcome Dr. Tim Gabbard, who is a uh, dual PhD and consults widely in the area of training load management. Alex Contouri, who is the Sports Science and Sports Medicine Director of the Australian Cricket Board. And Mr. Michael Drew, your title exactly at the AIS is? Uh, Senior Sports Physiotherapist. Look, we've got this amazingly well-qualified group and uh, we've we've had a great weekend here talking about uh, training load management and uh, injury prevention in that context. And I might just start with um, Tim, if you could explain what exactly is involved in uh, what what training load is and training load management um, entails in a broad sense. Um, If we had to define training load, I I guess it would be the work that we give to athletes the external work, so it could be the distance that they run, or the weight that they lift, or the number of jumps that they perform in training. That would be what we would consider external training load. And then we have an internal training load, which is the response to that work. So things like heart rate, or how intense the athlete perceived that work, we would call that internal training load. And then, you know, in terms of workload monitoring, so overall workload includes training and match loads. Essentially what what we do from a, a workload management perspective is to try and ensure that athletes um, have achieved adequate training loads to meet the demands of competition, but also that they're not under training or over training relative to those demands. So if, if players over train or or overwork, we know that that's an issue, but probably one of the things that, that's that's less well understood is the fact that you can under-train or under-work and that can be just as risky. Terrific. And what about the relationships between that short-term training or work and what their past history has shown as their training or work? We, we, um, we look at that into short-term, short-term training and long-term training. We, um, short-term training we call acute load, which is, which is analogous to fatigue. And then long-term training is what we would call chronic load, which is analogous to fitness. And essentially, um, you know, what, what we'd like for our athletes is for them to have high, high chronic loads, so high fitness and low acute loads or low fatigue and when you when your chronic loads are high and your acute loads are low um, you have an athlete that's in a pretty well prepared state and hopefully their their injury potential is is a lot lower but 
if you flip that around and their fatigue levels are high, so their acute loads are high and their chronic loads are low, that's, that's when we put our, our athletes at risk of, of injury and, and poor performance. I might go to Alex, and so we've talked about acute and chronic loads, and, and you have some significant problems with fast bowlers more than anyone else in your population. How do you contextualise acute and chronic load in a fast bowling population, and, and are there some numbers you can give us to help us guide their management? Yeah, we look at, um, with bowl, fast bowlers, obviously the number of balls bowled is a, an important measure. Um, and what we've seen with some of Tim's research is that when you add the internal load, like RP, the rate of perceived exertion to it, it makes it more sensitive and gives you a bit more information. So we keep a close eye on their, on their workloads and try to plan in advance so that when a player is going to perform in a particular, particular competition or tournament, they're prepared for that tournament. So we make sure that their chronic load is adequate for what we think they're going to perform in that test prospectively. So it's, it's always very hard to do because in cricket, you often don't know uh, how much how their workload's going to go. They can bowl more or less than what you expected. We tend to plan for the worst case scenario. Um, and if uh, things work out a little bit better than you, what you, um, that you, that you want um, or, or you expect, then yeah, you're happy with that. Um, absolute numbers. Um, in terms of the spike between the chronic and the acute, uh, or vice versa, what Tim just spoke about, um, vary uh, from player to player. Younger players uh, can tolerate smaller spikes in workloads, so um, if the average number of balls in, in a week have been 150 balls, and, and, and then they bowl 300 this week, then they've uh, had a... Uh, 100% increase in their workloads. That's the sort of uh, value that we find um, is becomes really risky. But we also find that, you know, like I said, some of the older players tend to cope with that a bit better because they've they've got that long history, uh, that development, bit of further advanced developmental process where they can cope with uh, those spikes. Um, ideally, we try not to have them spike uh, at that sort of uh, level, but. Sometimes it's unavoidable, and particularly um, in cricket and international cricket, where players really don't have an off-season. It's uh, ideally, you know, the the planning and the acute versus chronic workload works well when you've got uh, a nice off-season where you can periodise a program. You can have uh, three weeks up, one week down, and get them gradually get them up to that level you want. In reality, a lot of the better players uh, in cricket play pretty much 12 months of the year, and trying to do that and trying to monitor the acute and chronic load and trying to manipulate it becomes a lot harder. And um, you know, Mick Drew spoke about in in the, in the conference spoke about uh, the concept of a ceiling. Um, we also don't know what the ceiling is for some players. Whilst we want to get their chronic um, workloads really high, we also don't know how long can they stay at that high chronic workload. Or you know, whilst it might not, particularly from a spike, we don't know how long they can actually stay there before they need to come down and have a break. And what we're finding is eventually, if you don't give them a break and don't drop their workloads down and give them a short re uh, regeneration period, they break down anyway. Okay. Might uh, leads us to, to Mick Drew, and uh, we've talked about um, the loading acute and chronic. How does it? Uh, how does this knowledge prevent injury? We talked. You know, there's been mention of spikes um, and the acute chronic relationship, but how does all of this information help us to uh, prevent injury? Well. I feel for the last uh, couple of years, we've really understood now 
the risks that we're putting on our athletes. And so we need to take into account how we uh, plan and, and periodize and, and predict out uh, with uh, the intent of, of increased performance, but also on the other side, we need to understand the risks that we're imposing on, on the athletes through the environmental conditions such as uh, the external or internal workloads. So when we come to preventing injuries, just simply knowing the risks will not prevent injuries. You have to implement it and you have to uh, use it in your, your decision-making process. And that's where I believe this, this, um, this space is heading from my background being a physio, heading towards giving some more uh, uh, concrete um, advice to our patients as well as um, educating coaches and other um, members of, of the service team which all have an influence on, on the loads that we bear. So uh, I think first and foremost we need to understand that it, it's about the dose risk. Um, so for a certain amount of dosage you can also get a, a risk um, and whether that is um, uh, in, in favour of uh, performance or injury um, also relies on the, the phase of the competition and the athlete's career and what they want to do. But broadly um, injury prevention and training loads are quite um, in, intertwined. Uh, you know, through the, um, the public health models of prevention, we have primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. Primary prevention is um, the removal of risk factors uh, which are known to be causative. So um, the simplest example is removing um, smoking. So the, the anti-smoking campaigns. Uh, these are a primary prevention tool. You're removing the risk. And so, uh, Greg Lovell, uh, one of my um, colleagues up at the AIS, he published a paper, um, I can't remember what the year now, but uh, a couple of years ago around um, junior soccer players entering uh, a scholarship program. And the players with the lower um, amount of training sessions per week on entry uh, were more likely to go on for groin pain. And so using that example, if you haven't prepared yourself for the, the demands of the scholarship period or whatever, you're more likely to be injured. So an injury prevention program in this case could be advising them to slowly increase the amount of sessions per week until they come into, um, into the scholarship period, or it could be just um, going slower at the start of the scholarship period until they've built up uh, their chronic load or, or their resilience to that load. So you can either do more at home or be a little bit slower when you, um, when you join the period. Okay. I might go across to Tim, who tells us he can predict injury. And most of these guys tell us they can predict injury. How, Tim, can you predict injury and what are the numbers associated with it? You know, I think, I think uh, prediction is a, it's a, it's a, a pretty uh, uh, interesting word to use. I, I don't know whether I'd, I'd feel confident saying with you know that with any you know 100% certainty we can predict injuries. What what we can do is um, we can use training light information to to give us better insight into the risk associated. You know, with a given training load, this is a certain risk. So at, at um, if you know the relationship between load and injury, then you, you know that at a given training load um, and a given acute chronic workload ratio there's a certain there's a certain risk or a certain likelihood of injury that's that's probably a better way to to frame it rather than um, that you know suddenly we've got 
um, a whole heap of Nostradamuses um, walking around in, in sport. It, it's just, I think it's unrealistic when there's so many other factors other than load that can, can contribute to injury. Um, but what it, what it does tell you is that at a given load, this is your risk of injury. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're definitely going to get injured, but it allows you to, to weigh up the risk and reward associated with a given training session. So if, if you have an athlete that's about to train and, and you think, well, I'm going to get a performance benefit or I'm going to get a skill benefit, then, then you can weigh that, that potential benefit against the potential cost um, of, of going down that, that, that training path. Mm -hmm. So risk doesn't always equal rate. Um, and, and the reality is we're, we're just putting some numbers behind the, the gut feel of, of the calculations that coaches do in the head day to day. Coaches are always doing those calculations and, and balancing the risk and reward. We're just providing some numbers behind that. Yeah, I, I suppose I echo um, Tim's point. But uh, once again, when we're coming to predictions, I can tell you now that uh, if I could predict injuries, you know, injuries and success and failure uh, correlate, I probably might change industries because um, there's a lot more money to be had. But uh, uh, when, when we come to risk, we need to understand there's a difference between relative risks and, and absolute risks. And what we see is some of the likelihood um, percentage likelihood graphs that are floating around, these are sort of absolute risks. And so someone moving from uh, moderate to high uh, training load, um, you know, in the cross paper, it's, you know, three to four percent uh, likelihood of injury. So the absolute risk in that zone is about three to four percent. But moving to a higher, a low um, monthly load, uh, moves you up to sort of seven to eight percent. So you're still less than 10 percent risk, but compared to say that two to three percent, you could be you know, three to four times more likely. And so it's how we communicate the risk that's important because while you know fivefold risk of injury sounds sinister, it still might only be 15%. So there's still 85% chance that you may not get the outcome. Alex, you discussed uh, the age of fast bowlers and, uh, and that being below 25 years old being a significant risk factor for injury in fast bowlers. Can you give us some numbers when we combine that with Number, number of overs bowled. So what is the risk of being less than 25 years of age and then associate that with um, the acute and chronic loads? Yeah, so we had a paper published um, late last year that sort of showed what we, what our gut instinct was basically, that younger, younger fast bowlers are at greater risk. And if all we know about the player was that he was a fast bowler under the age of, uh, under the age of 25, uh, the, the relative risk was about three. Um, of getting injured, so three times greater than, than um, others. Um, if they were uh, under the age of 25 and they were playing in a first class game, which is a four and five day game, their risk was closer to five. And if they were under 25 and they bowled 40 overs in that first class game, their risk was closer to 10. So that's probably representative of um, some of the developmental things that we consider. You know, their bones haven't fully matured, and we see that. We see that in the soccer players study with, with groins, that they, don't, they get to the age, you know, after 20 before they fully uh, mineralize and, uh, and, they're, and they're matured. And, and, and it's the same with the lumbar spine. Most of our injuries occur in the lumbar spine. Um, there's um, some 
research to show that you don't get full mineralization um, uh, of bone until you get to your mid-20s. So that sort of correlates with that, um, you know, the physiology of it. It also correlates with the step up in intensity going from junior level of participation in the sort of late teens and early 20s um, into the senior game, whether it's uh, playing for the estate or playing internationally, and that step up in uh, in level, which is typically involves a step up in volume and intensity and, uh, and things like that, that represents the risk. Hmm. A final minute, and I'll throw it to Tim or whoever uh, would like to take it up. Um, a tip for those people listening who are not working in high performance sport and perhaps don't have access to the data um, you know, what, what's a good tip regarding training load management and um, you know, what they might see uh, in their athletes and then what they might implement? Um, I, th I think probably the, the, the tip if you're, if you're working with whatever athlete you're working with is don't, don't look at training load as so much as what you've done now. Look at what you've done over the last four weeks in comparison to now. Um, so I, th I think part of the issue is it's not necessarily that loads the problem, it's the load that you've been prepared for. So if your loads are low over the last four weeks and then you suddenly decide that you're going to, to train really hard, then you're going to put your athlete in a, in a position where they're at risk of getting injured. But if you have trained hard over a period of four weeks and then you then you put some extra load on top of that, you're much more likely to handle that load. So always compare your current load versus what you've done over a longer period of time. And uh, Michael, to finish for that community level practitioner, if that same athlete has had a three-week injury, in a, in a broad brush sense, how long to come back and what are the rules to get them back to their full level of activity? Uh, well, I suppose it, you have to take into account the, the drop in load and the length of break. Uh, the AOS has some documents on their website, um, if the listeners want to navigate there, where there's the tables available. And it basically is a, a linear re relationship between the, the length of time you're out, the drop that you've, you've uh, sustained, and therefore how long it will take you to get back without spiking the load as per the metrics that are in all Tim's papers, so maybe you just have a read rather than... I know, it's a good, so thank you uh, the Dream Team, Tim Gabbett, Alex Contouri, Michael Drew, and uh, we would refer you to their many publications that will give you a really good insight into training load management, and thanks for coming to Melbourne for the uh, Mastering Load Symposium. And our thanks to Paul Vizantini for producing that podcast for the BJSM community. You can find over 210 podcasts on the BJSM website and a very easy way to access them is by downloading a free app to your mobile device. Thank you for contributing to this BJSM community and I hope you get a chance to have a physically active day. 